what the fucklings, what the fuck knots, what the fuck minicans, what the fuck legions, what the fuck sticks, what the fuck stones, uh, what the fuck f- fuck casts, uh, what the fuckish, like the show Blackish. That's a new one, like Blackish but fuckish. It's me, Mark Marin. On today's program, David Duke. Holy fucking shit. Former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, ran unsuccessfully for a state set. What? 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 What's that? Where you, who are you? What? what are you doing in here? No, I had the studio. I, it's my. I, I'm right to the. Stu- it's my room. What? No, get the fuck out! Ah, ah! Man, you already have your own platform in your own fucking garage, bro. God, taking up my goddamn mic. <sighs> okay, sorry, everyone. Welcome to Paradox of Civility. I'm your host, the rightful host of this podcast, Roy Koshi. How are you? Hopefully the answer to that is uh, fine or good, because if you're doing badly and you want to talk about it, I can't really hear you. So um, if that's the case, sorry I asked. However, I am not sorry for presenting you this episode because it is a great one. Um, I got to catch up with and talk to Karina Luray Olson. So if you heard episode 29 of this podcast, you heard me talk to Karina back in 2013 when she was going by the name Corey Lubert. Uh, the name that she was going by before that was Axis Sally because she was in the white nationalist movement. So in the 2013 interview, we talked about how she entered the white nationalist movement and how she eventually left the movement. And we also discussed her uh, very interesting and multidimensional and rich life uh, going from working in funeral homes to uh, going working in torture porn and then eventually finding her way into bodybuilding competitions um, and you know of course the white nationalism stuff so um, I recommend you go and listen to that interview um, of course you can listen to it after you listen to this one but uh, I recommend you listen to it anyway because it's a very insightful one and this current conversation that we have is also an insightful one I got to interview her on July 30th 2019 so uh, some developments have happened in Karina's life since we last spoke for instance she converted to Islam um, that's right she is now Muslim and so we talk about that journey how she found Islam and how she converted and then we also talk about her current work uh, she works uh, again in the funeral business where she does actual re- reconstructive uh, work on trauma cases so we do discuss that um, and then of course uh, in keeping with the theme of this podcast and the reason why I wanted to have Karina back on um, we talk about you know what she's observing in the current Trump era and what she observed in the white nationalist movement uh, basically you know the ideology, the talking points, the agenda, the actions, the behavior from the white nationalist movement uh, and how it's made its way into the highest offices in the land in the United States of America. Beacon of freedom and um, liberty and, you know, tolerance and all that stuff. At least that's what they say. So um, we also do talk about the pipeline of hatred that runs from fringe white supremacist white nationalist groups to the mainstream and Karina makes a really really important point and I really want to emphasize this Um, she talks about how immigration as an issue was used to push white nationalist white supremacist talking points basically used to uh, push this ideology into the mainstream and it was an easy way to push it into the mainstream because immigrants are definitely the other 
I mean, think about it. Like, you know, um, even if you support immigrants, there's still another. Like, when you hear even liberals talk about immigration and immigrants, it's still like an other group of species. And we're just deciding to be nice to them. We're deciding not to step on these ants, you know? That's sort of like the way that it's talked about. Um, they're very othered, you know? Because, like, even like whatever their struggles are, even if we sympathize, we don't ever have to see it. We don't really experience much of it. Um, and, um, again... We had this conversation on July 30th. A lot has happened since that conversation. The release date of this podcast is August 12th, 2019. So um, in the conversation with uh, Karina, we talked about the garlic, the Gilroy Garlic Festival shooter and a couple of other lone wolf uh, shootings. And um, since July 30th, we've had a lot happen. So we had uh, the El Paso shooting where uh, the terrorist who shot up the Walmart uh, in El Paso was motivated by the anti-immigrant rhetoric of Donald Trump and basically, you know, saw these people uh, as invaders. This is an invasion. Uh, we had the Dayton, Ohio shooter. Um, and in that case, people are trying to tie him to left-wing people. Um, a lot of that seems to stem from misogyny. I don't know how left-wing this guy was. I mean, again, you know, I'm sure he liked certain left-wing people. He may have even espoused some of, the, of that ideology. But this one, it seems like it was more, he didn't shoot up like Republicans. He didn't shoot up like a Proud Boys event. I'd have a different opinion of him if he did, by the way. Um, but he didn't. Um, he found a bar in Dayton. And it seems like he was actually motivated by just straight-up misogyny because he was known to threaten women. He kept a rape list. Uh, several people who went to school with him, who even dated him, came forth and talked about his kind of like just unhinged misogyny. And um, we talk about this. Karina and I also talk about the incel movement that has sort of uh, basically fueled the alt-right, has become another wing of the alt-right. Um, in that, um, you know, white nationalists, white supremacists, and incels have found found a common cause, and they've united forces in that way, in, inflicting terror on the general population. So we do talk about that a little bit. Um, and then uh, in Norway, there was a mosque shooting. And again, another person, another white male, who was uh, inspired by right-wing attacks, and especially inspired by the... Um, Christchurch, New Zealand shooting, uh, where 51 people were killed at mosques in New Zealand, and um, also apparently inspired by the El Paso shooting as well, and um, he was part of a mutation of 4chan and 8chan, uh, would post message, messages on there. So um, I've spoken about this on the show. Um, even if these people are just lone wolves, they're not really lone wolves. I mean, they're they're existing within an ecosystem. They're kind of being raised online and they're being radicalized online. Even if they're not claiming membership of, of a specific group, um, you know, they're still radicalized and they're still part of an ecosystem. So it's not just somebody snapping. It's not mental illness because most mentally ill people uh, are very lovely people. And um, they're, they're actually really like more likely to be the victims of these violent acts than they are the perpetrators. And so um, this is going to sound like kind of a controversial point. Um, and I'm sure a lot of liberals are not going to like this one, but the background checks on people with mental illness, I don't think is a good idea because you're also ghettoizing mental, mentally ill people still. How about you just ban certain weapons? 
I know there's a black market out there and people will find them if they ever want to, but holy shit. The guy in El Paso bought his gun legally. I mean, we can make it harder for people to purchase these like weapons of war. Um, and so that's the thing. Like, so when you just say background checks for these certain types of people, uh, it's really not good. And also, the current right wing led by Donald Trump take advantage of that because it's a way for them to demonize the mentally ill. And they're talking about involuntary locking up involuntarily locking up mentally ill people now. I mean, this is what the Nazis did. The people who were disposable, the people who were not pure, got locked away and killed. So this is where we're going, and I just wish that liberals would not keep stepping into this fucking shit. Because they keep fucking doing it, you know? And it's really frustrating. Um, another point of the news, um, a point, another news story, another big story in America, um, was the massive ice raid on coach foods Koch foods in uh in uh mississippi so um okay this is a uh, at the morton faculty in mississippi Co uh, ice uh, rounded up 680 undocumented workers and of course plenty of people have asked this question and rightfully so were any Koch food managers or supervisors arrested or charged in conjunction with this raid? Um, I looked on the, Co the Koch Foods website, and the way that they explain like how they employed unauthorized workers without knowing it is so ridiculous. And I'll just read a couple of these things. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll post a link to this uh, in the uh, description below. I don't know if they're going to take it down or not. So uh, I guess get on it while you can. Um, so uh, there's one question that says, how could Koch Foods possibly employ an unauthorized worker without knowing it? They talk about how they've uh, voluntarily participated in the federal government's E-Verify program for more than 10 years. And, um, you know, um, they say that they're following every measure that they can. Uh, but then they like they present this sort of like hypo here where they say that, um, you know, a worker could steal the identity of a person who's authorized to work in the United States. And then to then present to Koch Foods identity and work authorization documents that appear authentic. When Koch Foods puts puts such worker through the e-verify system, the system indicates that the worker is authorized because, unbeknownst to Koch Foods and the e-verify system, the information that the workers provide pertains to the stolen identity of an authorized worker. Six hundred and eighty fucking people did this? Really? I don't fucking believe that. And then they go on to lament the fact that federal immigration and discrimination law require Koch Foods to accept documents that appear authentic and that they're prohibited from asking a worker for additional documentation in such a situation and from disqualifying a worker from employment because of his or her national origin or citizenship. Why are you mentioning that? Therefore, Koch Foods must simultaneously comply with both federal immigration and discrimination laws. So, okay, you're not allowed to disqualify a worker from employment because of his or her national origin or citizenship. Why would that be a part of like whether they're authorized to work or not? Why are you bringing that shit up? I mean, the tone of it is very victim-y. It's like, uh, as much as we want to, we can't ask their national origin or citizenship. So, you know, we just got to make do. Um, I don't understand. Like, I mean, again, wherever somebody is from, either they're, allowed to work here or they're not. So why would you go digging through their background anyway? That's a little fucking ridiculous. 
And who, why do you care who's handling your shitty chicken, by the way? And um, also, uh, there is a question. They do address the question if uh, the August 7th ICE raid was related to a prior EEOC case regarding Hispanic employees. And so um, they say, no, it doesn't relate to that. Um, and they do. Uh, so this was a case where they had to settle uh, with their uh, workers who sued them. Uh, there were discrimination allegations and sexual harassment allegations as well. And they do highlight the fact that these were Hispanic employees. They say a group of Hispanic employees and, you know, however, brought civil suits against Koch Foods. They do hammer that point home a lot. So I don't know. Here's my question. If I was currently hiding an undocumented family, family of immigrants in my apartment right now, in my house, in my co-op, um, I think I'd be arrested, too, if I showed up. I'd be dinged for that, right? We're at that point now, you know, where I'd be considered a, a collaborator. No, collaborators are the bad guys, right? I'd be considered like uh, an ally. But I'd be considered actually like I'd be considered like aiding and abetting crime. So you have 680, probably even more undocumented workers. And you're really trying to convince me that like, um, you know, uh, unauthorized workers stole identities. I know it's like one example that they give, but it's so far fetched. All right. And basically you're talking about participating in the federal government's e-verify program as well. So either the federal government knowingly let undocumented folks work or you did. Am I wrong about that? Am I just being simplistic? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can comment below wherever you're listening to this podcast. But um, I'm recording a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of safe to assume that, um, you know, this was in retaliation. Like, these people did this backbreaking, shitty work, probably not healthy for them. Uh, Koch probably didn't need them anymore. And the fact that they were sued by them, that Koch had to settle out of court uh, due to EEO violations of sexual harassment and discrimination. Uh, this could be seen as retaliation. And this is a situation where it's fascism at its best. And it's fascism that's so American. It's, a, it's just big business and big government repression all in one, working together. The big state, big business, big corporations coming together to make America really fucking less brown uh and really just drawing blood from people really a lot of blood on our hands yeah so anyways i'm sharing a lot of this stuff just to kind of keep a record for what's going on while i'm recording this podcast um obviously like mirroring the conversations the interactions i had with white nationalists and in this case a former white nationalist um and just sort of matching that to what's happening currently. Um, it's partially a record. Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if things are going to get better, if they're going to get worse. Um, and then this past weekend, Jeffrey Epstein uh, allegedly committed suicide. Uh, this is a guy who ran the Lolita Express, uh, Major Pedo. Um, and he was very associated with uh, a current president and a former president and other very, very wealthy people. And apparently he was taken off suicide watch because he was in jail because he'd finally got caught and uh, he killed himself or 
probably not killed himself. Um, I'm not a big conspiracy nut, but it doesn't sound like he fucking killed himself. Um, and so, um, yeah, just, uh, feels like, um, what's happening, what's happened in Europe in the thirties. Um, and, um, I recommend anyone also watch this film, Night and Fog. It's a 30-minute documentary made by the French filmmaker Alain Renier. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I've mentioned on this podcast before. Um, but it does highlight how big business, uh, how certain um, industries, how certain uh, uh, parties are interested in making a profit off of the blood and pain of human beings. And they need to see that profit uh, grow, actually. Like at one point they mentioned like how these facilities were built and they were waiting for people to come in that in night and fog. Really fascinating movie, actually. So um, that's all I have to say today. Um, and uh, it's hard not to feel despair, but um, treat yourself. Um, give somebody a hug. I don't know. The people in your life, like just try to make those relations, relations positive as much as you can. Um, it does matter. It does matter. Be silly. Create art that's silly, too, just as much as you should create art that's relevant and searing and is confronting the sick reality that we're in right now. Um, so that's all I have to say. And listen to this interview with Karina Luray Olson. It's a great one. All right. And I am here with Karina Olson, formerly known as Corey Lubert. And uh, if you listen to episode 29 of Paradox of Civility, you heard my interview with her where she talked about leaving the white nationalist movement. And in the white nationalist movement, she was known as Access Sally. Uh, Karina, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I, yes, I've been known as a lot of things. And uh, today I, I definitely want to be known as my real name. I am Karina Luray Olson. I live in Tacoma, Washington. And I like to state this up front because uh, one of the reasons that kept me in the white nationalist movement a lot longer than I wanted to be there was fear, uh, fear of retaliation, um, because people don't, uh, they don't take kindly to women who want to leave these organizations. Yeah. Um, so I always use my real name and I deliberately make myself very easy to find, uh, to show that I don't have any reason to be afraid of the low life of society anymore. Great, great. Well, so I guess, yeah, that's a great starting point uh so you left the white nationalist movement um and that can also often be as you just now pointed out uh that comes with a lot of fear because it can be potentially dangerous uh but as you are open about what your full name is karina luray olson and you live in tacoma washington um have you to this day um do you still have any sort of uh people stalking you from the white nationalist movement or people harassing you even from afar um what's the status on that uh to this day no i you know it's gone nothing beyond um online threats which never materialized um and i mean like i mean not only do i state up front where i live but i mean i i'm a tiny middle-aged woman living alone with no weapons i don't lock my door um, yeah i there really has been nothing to fear from these people right right so nobody has uh, transgressed like physical boundaries in the year since you left the white in the year since you left the white nationalist movement. Not toward me, now that I can see. 
Okay, great, great. That's great to hear. Um, do you have, like, um, so you left the white nationalist movement. I mean, anyone who wants to hear that full story, you can go back to listen to this podcast, episode 29, because um, we had a pretty in-depth conversation about uh, your entire journey. And um, I guess I was curious, um, do you have, um, did you find, like, a support group ever of former white nationalists that uh, once you left the white nationalist movement, did you ever, like, find other former white nationalist folks? Um, a few have contacted me, um, other women who have left uh, the National Socialist Movement, for example. And I got in touch with Angela King of Life After Hate, who runs yeah. a nonprofit dedicated to helping people leave the movement. Oh, cool. Okay. Are you involved in that, in, in that kind of work of helping people leave the movement? Uh, not officially. I, I did have some ideas that... Um, you know, I ran them by her. One of the things I wanted to do was start showing up at white nationalist rallies with maybe a banner or a booth, you know, just saying, hey, do you want to leave white nationalism? Because it can show people, you know, people who attend the rally that, you know, people do get out of these movements. Uh, people, they, they grow up and they gain some emotional maturity and realize that this isn't who I want to be. And then also people who maybe they aren't, trying to leave the movement yet, but years later they might remember, hey, there was somebody at one of those rallies who yeah. this and left. I should find out how they did that. That sounds like a great um, idea. I think that organization is working with people who are still very afraid uh, for good reason and mm -hmm. aren't ready to be quite uh, as open as I would like to be just yet. Right. Right. So, okay. Yeah. Um that sounds like a great idea, and that's great that you're working with that group. Um, and uh, I guess uh, before we get into sort of to kind of deep dive back into that white nationalist, um, sort of like just to sort of like go into that discussion, I just want to catch up with uh, you, the person, Karina Luray Olson. Um, so we talked about six years ago now. Um, and in uh, the time that we talked, uh, you know, you described your journey from working in funeral homes to working in torture porn to eventually find the white nationalist movement and then working in bodybuilding competitions. So according to your website, you were back in the funeral business and you told me uh, that you are no longer participating in bodybuilding competitions. Is that correct? Correct. And also, I saw on your website that you have uh, converted to Islam. I read some of your blog pieces. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Okay. So I guess uh, let's just start with uh, – we'll start with these things one by one. Uh, so I'll, maybe from low to high here. Um, so bodybuilding competitions, uh, you no longer participate in that. Is that like you quit them cold turkey? Um, and if so, uh, what made you quit bodybuilding? Um. You know, bodybuilding, that was a uh, that was another thing that I joined because it seemed interesting, and then I took it to very unhealthy levels, and then I just wanted to be done with it. Um, did my last competition, maybe it was, maybe 2016? Oh, wow. Uh, I was spending just insane amounts of money and time, and um, I got very uh, deeply involved in extensive cosmetic surgery and it was it just wasn't healthy for me it wasn't i wasn't having fun anymore for so long right okay and it wasn't a good lifestyle and i could see that it wasn't leading anywhere i mean all you get is a trophy and i saw that i was hooked on the attention i was getting right 
and it ended up just being not enough. Okay. And then um, I, my question would be this. Um, well, the second, not, the second uh, question would be, so you went back into the funeral business. So you'd left the funeral business for a while, right, when you were going through everything else, every other phase in your life. What made you go back to the funeral business? Uh, I never really left the funeral business. I mean, there was there were periods of like a year or more when, you know, due to my outspoken racism, uh, nobody really wanted to work with me. Okay, I see. Uh, okay, yeah. But I I never really left for any uh, great length of time, and I've been I've been actually working um, independently as just kind of kind of what I always wanted to do ever since I went to mortuary school. I wanted to be uh, what's known as a trade embalmer, just somebody who goes around to different funeral homes doing embalming for people who maybe don't have an embalmer on staff. And I wanted to specialize in restorative art, like repairing, okay. you know, people who have been who died in traumatic or disfiguring ways. And that's what I'm doing now. And I've managed to turn that into um, almost full time work and managing oh, awesome. to just yeah support myself just doing that and not having to do other parts of the funeral industry that I just kind of got tired of. So, you know, that's kind of like following to a theme because, you know, you would find the most extreme aspects of any career that you've had. Like, so, um, you know, I know that you were in, in our previous interview six years ago, you talked about like being attracted to like working in a funeral home because like you were interested in death. And, and then I think like, you know, it sounds like with their bodybuilding work, you kind of went to the extreme in bodybuilding and, um, with torture porn, I know that like you, part of it was a business decision to go into torture porn as opposed to normie porn. Um, but like, it seemed like you were still attracted to the extreme. So, um, hearing you describe your current work, it's not just like you doing embalming. It just sounds like it's a very specific sort of embalming. Like you are specifically focusing on traumatic, uh, death, traumatic injuries and reconstructing yeah. that. Now, um, just to sort of uh, talk about that for a second, uh, do you feel like that's kind of another way of you pursuing um, kind of exploring death, kind of exploring that extreme side of your personality, or do you feel like it's a more altruistic uh, mission that you have? What do you, what do you say to that? Definitely the altruism is a factor. I don't know if I, if I touched on this in my first interview, I had a younger brother who died in an accident and he wasn't viewable and, Oh, I never, really, yeah. I just have this desire to not be able to tell, not have to tell another family, I'm sorry, he's not going to be viewable to, uh, you know, I like to prove the medical examiner wrong, and I have done that several times. Okay. Um, for, and it's just a, a really good thing to be able to do for these families, uh, for those who believe in viewing, for those who find closure that way, to let them know that it will be possible after all. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, um, I guess, you know, uh, what are some of those, and you, do you run, do you, like, you don't run your own funeral home, right? You don't, like, have your own physical space. You kind of work for other funeral homes as this specific sort of, uh, uh, this specific service. Am I correct about that? Uh, basically, the way it is in Washington, um, anybody, you're, you're allowed to call yourself a funeral home and bill, your services that way uh, you don't actually have to own the place you just have to own the license to operate the place okay i see which is what i do so people who are looking for somebody who can do what they can't do they i'm i am listed as a funeral home that they can call and then right 
send a staff person to their location. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess like how has that been? I mean, this is going to sound like a ghoulish question, but have you gotten a lot of business? I do get a lot of business. Oh, yeah. Um, That's terrible. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm happy for, for you getting business, but yeah. I, I worked for this one place that called me uh, quite a bit. They did almost exclusively gang shootings. Oh, gosh. So that was um, the bulk of my work. Okay. Okay. And how is that, um, like, like dealing with family members and sort of, I mean, do you ever, do you ever come up short in, re- in reconstructing, uh, their deceased, their loved one's, uh, body and face? Uh, are there any challenges I, in that way? I always say if they have a face, I can still work with it. Um, if the face is completely obliterated or if the body is very badly decomposed, there's not much I can do. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, so, well, that brings me to the third change in your life since we last talked is your conversion to Islam. Um, so I read a little bit about uh, – I, I kind of didn't get to read the whole thing, but I read some of your blog on your website, and you talked about uh, your first Ramadan. And um, I think I think I read a little bit about your second Ramadan as well and the challenges that you faced. Um, mm-hmm. I guess uh, for the listeners, um, can you give us uh, – you know, whatever you want to give us. Um, how did you come to Islam after everything else in your life? In like in these last six years, at least, how, how did you come to discover and embrace Islam? Uh, the exact um, defining moment that was like a punch in the stomach that made me uh, call, you know, three mosques in a row and decide to convert at the first one that called me back. That That is something I've chosen to share only with people of the faith. It's just still sure. too highly personal for me Um, but I can say I've spent let's see I've been Muslim for a little over a year now and before that I spent maybe three years just studying Islam because it because like like so many other things I'm interested in it was uh, it was a strange world that people don't know about and that um, seems a little bit strange to outsiders yeah Um, so okay so you spent time Sorry. Yes, I spent time just, uh, you know, reading the Quran and and just reading about Islam in general. Right. And that's before you even uh, that's before you even considered joining, like you just studied it for a little bit, just out of curiosity. I I didn't think I could join. It seems, you know, I mean, of course, it seems very restrictive. Yeah. Um, There's it seems just a non-Muslim's perspective is, is they're going to say, you know, who would do this? Who would want to? be part of something that says you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this and you you have to dress like this. Uh, sure. Um, it just seemed like a, a very, a world full of very peaceful, well-connected people that I, I didn't believe I could be a part of, but I thought maybe I could learn about it and just kind of yeah. be an outsider looking in. Yeah, right, right, right. And then you did have a moment, which you're not, we don't have to get into, where it was finally like the turning point where you decided that you needed to join. Um, and it was a, it was a funeral that I, I didn't feel I could get through. I was going to refuse to work that service. Um, it was just emotionally too much for me. And, and seeing what I see on a daily basis, if something's too much for me, that's a lot. Yeah, um, of course. And, it, and then I just kind of, I was reading, just doing my normal, reading and then I, I heard the exact words I needed to hear. That was that's the short version. Sure. Okay. Wow. And do uh you know, if you you know, you currently practice um 
you're currently practicing Muslim. And do you belong to a mosque currently? I do. I mean, it's not like um, it's not like Christianity where you have your church that you go to. Um, generally, um, I mean, because the prayers are so often, um, most women don't go to the mosque regularly for prayers. Um, the men are. It's kind of required for the men to go. The women can do their prayers anywhere. Right. And actually, most of the women just go to the mosque during Ramadan. Okay. So, but I have one. You know, the one that I. I said the um, Shahada, which is the um, basically the affirmation of faith. The one, the one I said that statement at. I that's the one I, you know, give to financially and go to the banquets and fundraisers and volunteer at the events. Right. And do do like your fellow Muslims know about your past by chance, or have you talked with them about your past as, you know, uh, especially like your your time in the white nationalist movement. You know, I've talked with just the few I've become good friends with. Um, Islam has a rule, and it's a rule that I sometimes have a hard time with. I, I don't entirely agree with. Uh, basically, whatever sins you've committed in your life, they don't want to know. They'll never ask. They, okay. Even as a Muslim, if I were to do something like, say, drink alcohol, their official policy on that is never bring it up. It's between you and God. Oh, wow. I never knew that. And, yeah, I mean, personally, I believe that, I mean, because a lot of, you know, the things that I've done in my past um, with the white nationalist movement, I mean, I consider that probably the most horrible and offensive thing I've ever been part of, and it's something that uh, I think I'll spend the rest of my life kind of trying to atone for that, and I, I would like to be able to be honest and say, you know, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and, you know, apparently there are the people of this faith, they, they would prefer not to know about any of that. Sure. So I only I only talk about it with the ones I've become friends with. Do you find uh, that you, like, so to follow that, um, you know, teaching, or I don't want to say teaching, but that sort of, like, um, um, part, this essential part of the Muslim faith where you don't confess your sins to other humans, you confess it to God and you atone with your God, um, do you feel that you've, found any peace in like atoning by yourself with you and God? Have you found any of that peace there? I have found some. Yes. I mean, it, it's uh, I think it's one of those things that again, will take, uh, if not a lifetime, an unidentifiably long time. Right. I think right. it's true what they say that, um, you know, forgiving yourself is, is always going to be the hardest part. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I got to say, if people in the white nationalist movement already hated you for leaving, they probably really hate you now for uh, converting oh. to Islam. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably, you know, they, I mean, the, they'll occasionally engage with me online just to let me know that, you know, they don't approve of me as a person. And I think and what they hate, the, the thing they hate about me most of all is that I left them and I ended up getting everything I wanted. Right. You know, I didn't, it wasn't like uh, what they spend years drilling into your head, that if you leave us, oh, you'll be murdered by illegal immigrants. Right. You went on, you live, you're still living a full life. Right. Yeah. I got back uh, everything that I lost as a result of being with them. 
So, um, I guess like when you say they, they, they reach out to you online occasionally, um, what do you mean by that? Is that like on Twitter, on Facebook, on just your email? Uh, how do they reach you? Oh, any, any social media site. Right. Cause you're on Twitter, uh, and I have your page here. It's at six point me, please. Am I allowed to pump that for everybody? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. Twitter is not where I'm most active. I'm just banned from Facebook now because I I said something that offended a racist and they complained about me. So if you see me that's on Twitter, because like, I'm, I'm banned on Facebook again. That's like, that's been a thing. Like Facebook, like if you quote a Nazi or you say something back to a hateful person, they ban you on Facebook. I don't know, like, if they just... I can't tell, if, I still can't tell, like, if it's just that they're just incompetent there and they don't know what they're doing with this sort of robust website that they have with all these psychotic people on it, or if just they actually are legitimately like, well, we kind of need our dot Nazi dollars, so, you know, I don't want uh, this person causing a ruckus, we'll throw you under the bus. I can't tell on Facebook sometimes, because I've heard that a lot, not just from you, but... I've heard a lot of people like say something back to like a white nationalist, and they're the ones that gets banned. I don't know what the fuck is going on there. What I've heard is that it's an algorithm. Like if if uh, you get ten complaints against you, you're automatically banned. So I mean, racists, you know, they yeah. spend a lot of time online. They might have ten of their own accounts. They yeah. Can just automatically complain about you. Right, right, right. They can just yeah, they can get you banned that way. Okay. Yeah. It's not that, like Zuckerberg that's... himself is reading all of these. Well, of course calling, not. You know, you know, stupid and uh, dumb white trash. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, you know, speaking of the movement, like we talked last time that uh, you were on, you talked about your time with Harold Covington, um, the leader of the white, uh, the Northwest Front, and your involvement in the Northwest Front. And Harold Covington passed away. Uh, that was last year, right? Yes. Okay. Um, so, how did you uh, mourn his death? Well, you know, <laughs> I decided to do absolutely nothing. Um, I didn't acknowledge it at all. I didn't say anything online. I didn't show up at the funeral. I didn't show up to ruin the funeral. I did nothing, because that's what he deserved. Um, nothing. And his death and manner of death was absolutely no shock to me. He died alone. From what I understand, he was found dead after about a week, Yeah, meaning that... After all this time he spent trying to build a violent revolution, he didn't even have anyone in his life to know that he was dead. Oh, wow. And he died having accomplished nothing. Right. And do you feel like something like that with um, like a figurehead like Harold Covington, as much of a fuck-up as he may have been, um, do you feel like that sort of destabilizes that particular group or that particular movement? Or is there just somebody who's going to take over and it's just going to be business as usual in the white nationalist movement? Uh, given the pattern of the white nationalist movement, I mean, Harold tried to take over after the order disbanded. Um, right. And the order, uh, I won't call them successful, but they, they accomplished a lot more than Harold did. The order was, um, they, they were a pretty violent group and like they were there were prosecutions involved was that lewis beams i talked about no, lewis that was beams. um robert matthews and david lane david lane and david lane's the 1488 guy right yes okay yeah that okay sorry i get these people confused they were pretty they were actually 
a bit of, like yeah, like maybe not successful on the long run, but they were a threat certainly, right? Yes. And so he tried um, to take Harold, over the. Harold himself was never a threat to anyone. He inspired people, um, like Dylan Roof. Yeah. Uh, but he himself never left his apartment. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And well, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing that Harold's successor is going to be, you know, less of a success than Harold, and so on and so on. Right. Yeah, okay. And, um, right, right, right. I mean, so, I guess, what's it gonna take for these groups to kinda die out at some point? Like, are they gonna die out? Because it's like, you know, you look at the groups themselves, you see the dysfunction. Uh, like that guy, Matthew Heimbach, uh, he was at the Charlottesville rally where somebody got killed, Heather Hayer got killed. And, you know, that guy, like, he was sort of being, like, presented through the media as the new David Duke. And then his group, Hispanics, he was sleeping with his stepmother or some shit. Um, But these groups themselves seem to keep on, they get a new name, they get a new title. They kind of seem to keep existing. And that's what I have a problem, like, that's what I'm confused with is, like, I don't know, man. Uh, How... How do they keep existing? Is there like a shadow billionaire network of racists that just keep funding these guys? Like, what am I missing here? Um, I don't believe that, uh, I mean, there may be some groups that have one independently wealthy guy funding them. Um, Harold, you know, most of his money and he, he brought in enough money to live on and it was all in 20 and $50 checks from other races. Just, yeah. Okay. So. These guys kind of that, each other. That's probably the the most common source of funding. Just a bunch of people giving twenty dollars at a time. Right. I think that humans in general um, don't like each other, and it's going to be in their nature to continue coming up with reasons not to like each other and joining with other like-minded people to continue hating the same group of people. And race, skin color, natural origin is always going to be one of the things they hate because it's so it's physically noticeable right well so this is a good uh transition for me then uh so you know we can talk about these groups and you saw this and you talked about this in our previous uh interview about how members of this group are basically a joke and you know the idea of white pride is ridiculous because these guys are they have nothing to be proud of but obviously these groups, their ideology, their talking points even, have basically found a new boost. They've found new confidence. They've found new support in uh, our current era under President Donald J. Trump. Um, and that's another reason why I wanted to have you on. Like, having been inside of the movement, um, can you just give me a general sense of how you felt since Donald Trump took office? Um do you feel like the thing that you were escaping from is now kind of an umbrella over the country? Because, um, I mean, I'm, I wasn't in the movement or anything like that, and I, I feel that way. I, it's kind of a terrifying time. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts about that? I think that under Trump, uh, the racists, they're getting a little bit bolder. They're, I mean, being a racist used to be something you kind of had to hide and shame about and yeah. only – talk about with others like you and now uh, people are feeling more okay about being completely open about it of course yeah 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 
Um, I mean, do you do you see mirrors between what you were heard, like what you what you were taught in the white nationalist movement, and what you're hearing from Trump and his, say, like his biggest supporters, his acolytes, his aides? Um, how how much of what you're hearing from Trump uh, mirrors what you heard in the white nationalist movement? Um, concerning immigrants. Yeah. Um, you know, Trump pushes this image of immigrants as being criminals and rapists and drug dealers and animals. And that's how, I mean, when I was with the white nationalist movement, that's how we saw everybody who wasn't with us. Yeah. So, and another, that's another way they're becoming bolder is that now, well, now the president agrees with us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, and so I guess like this is like why I'm a little, uh, you know, worried, um, I didn't tell you this before, but I'm of Indian descent. My family, my parents are from India. And, um, you know, so I'm a person of color. So I'm always a little bit on edge these days because back then when I was doing the show anonymously, probably even if I revealed like my ethnicity, you know, it's sort of like these groups that I was talking to. I mean, you heard that episode, like you heard the guy who called in after your interview, right. that <laughs> lunatic. Um, and so, like, you know, these people were still considered fringe weirdos. Like, these are people on the fringes. They have no real power. Even if they try to attack anybody, they'll probably get caught. But um, it seems like they've, they are, these same people have taken over the government, basically. And there is like it's it's like their sort of ideology, their wishes, their darkest wishes have found their way in policy, especially with the uh, policies at the border, at the southern border, in which there's deliberate cruelty being inflicted on people. Uh, children are being separated from their parents. Uh, you know, uh, they're being terrorized on purpose. They're purposely being denied soap and toothpaste. And, you know, ICE is also uh, raiding a lot of communities. They're just terrorizing a lot of communities. And then, like, there was even a recent sort of directive where ICE is allowed to basically detain and arrest anybody without a trial uh, if they can't prove their citizenship in the moment that somebody from ICE uh, accosts them. So that's what's a little frightening to me. I mean, do you do you see that, too? Do you see, like, sort of, like, the te- like the kind of what may have been, like, kind of, like, a bunch of insane dudes drinking too much and maybe doing some drugs in a, in a field somewhere. Do you see like that sort of like what you witnessed in the white nationalist movement being put into policy? I mean, like what, what are your thoughts about that? It's exactly like that. Uh, there's been many parallels drawn between today and Nazi Germany, um, you know, rounding up people who are different than us and putting them in camps. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what's sort of like, and so like, how does that, like, does that challenge, like, is that a challenge for, like, say, you know, what you and fo- the folks at Life After Hate are trying to do? Does that make life harder for people who try to leave these, like, say, like, the, so just on the street level, the people who are currently in white nationalist movements who actually want to leave the movement? Um, do you feel like that's just now much more challenging for them to do so because the broader movement just is more empowered by Donald Trump? I think, you know, I think the challenges to leaving the movement are still going to come from just um, very violent members from within the movement. Um, yeah. And it depends on what what faction of the white nationalist movement we're talking about. I mean, um, the groups I was in, they, they were criminal organizations. And, you know, yeah. trying to leave a criminal organization when you are, when you've 
been deeply involved, when you have firsthand knowledge of things people have done, you can't just say, well, you know, I'm not really into this anymore. I'm just going to walk away now. They're going to say, well, what about all those things she saw us do? Yeah, exactly. That's like the mob kind of. Um, Well, and I guess like um, as a Muslim, now this this administration has targeted Muslims. They've put forth a Muslim ban and they've banned people from certain countries. As somebody who's a Muslim, do you feel like you'll ever be, because you're also a white person, um, Mm -hmm. do you feel like you'll ever be swept up in the Muslim ban? Or do you think that's going to just probably exist amongst people of color? I have experienced no harassment uh, from anyone due to, you know, being dressed as a Muslim. And I think it's because I'm white. Yeah. Uh, I was afraid, you know, I think it took me about a month to get comfortable wearing the headscarf. And I, I was, what I was afraid of was losing the white privilege I'd been enjoying all my life. I thought, well, okay, now I guess I'm going to be one of those people who gets screamed at on the street and has things thrown at me in the stores. And none of that ever happened. Instead, uh, you know, people call me brave or progressive and. Oh, really? Oh, that's, that's interesting. Actually, it's, it's insulting toward um, other other Muslims. I mean, why is why are the Arabic women not brave? Why are the Mexican Muslims who left Mexico and rejected Catholicism and have been shamed by their families because of it? Why are they not brave? Because they have brown skin? Yeah. So who calls you brave exactly? Like, is it like li- like white liberals? Yes, definitely white oh. white liberals. <laughs> That's so nauseating, man. Yeah, the, and these same white liberals. Like, so do they, okay, so they're, like, light-skinned Muslims out there. So, like, if I see, like, a white-looking Muslim, I never, like, go up to them. I I, I would never, like, just outright assume that they're uh, actually of European descent or anything. But, so, you haven't had anyone come up to you and be like, hey, you go go back to your, it. oh, wait, you're white. You haven't had that, okay? <laughs> you haven't had people, like, try to yeah. attack you. But, uh, I, I don't know, like, so you have white liberals, do they just are these strangers who just come up to you and they're just like, "Wow, you're so brave for being an ally to Muslims," or and you it's know, pr- for being yourself? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they ask me like, "Where where are you from?" And then, okay, well, where are your parents from? Oh, you're actually like from America and, and <laughs> chose to be Muslim for some reason. Oh wow! So they don't they they're not quite sure you're white because they're asking you the "Where are you really from?" question. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, right. Or a lot of people oh ask God. me if I'm a nun, because I, I guess a, a white Catholic makes a lot more sense. Sure. Yeah. 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 Oh my God, that's so fucking funny. Well, speaking of like, okay, okay so look, this is another good like talking point I wanted to talk to you about. So we know like the skinhead gangs and folks like that. Like, I think like society at large. Like both like liberals and conservatives have rejected those people because, you know, they're they're on the street level and like they're obviously like, you know, Nazis. But there's been like this respectability remake of um, white nationalist, white supremacist movements in these last few years, uh, especially like the alt right. And you have these people like Richard Spencer. I mean, before him, you had like David Duke and, and folks like that. And then, like, you had this another, this other, like, sort of level of the right wing that's, like, the alt-light that includes, like, you know, more, like, these media personalities, um, like Gavin McInnes, who used to run Vice. He founded a hate, a, a hate group called the Proud Boys. 
And, you know, you have people like Dave Rubin just having like these sort of like race realist type people on. Um, that's what sort of bothers me more because the people who just have fallen into this ideology and they're squarely on their side, I can see them and I know where they are and I know that they're in the minority. But for some reason, like white moderates and even some white liberals, like when it comes to respectability, they seem to reject uh, the alt-right and alt-light people so much. Like, for instance, like, you know, uh, Richard, Jake Tapper of CNN had Richard Spencer on to talk to him about, like, Donald Trump's comments. Um, it might have been his comments about the go back to where you came from. I, I don't, or I can't remember why he was on again. Um, now, Richard Spencer was kind of a joke because he got punched in the face and he was kind of already, his operation was kind of, his thing was falling apart a little bit. And so, what like what do you think like from like maybe like a white liberal white moderate standpoint? Why do these people keep fucking doing this? Like why do why does white America even respectable liberal white America keep giving these people a chance? Like the Richards like why would Jake Tapper need to have Richard Spencer on his program? It seems that if you have a normal looking appearance, you will be given a chance. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I was asked to become a leader of the the National Socialist Movement chapter that I just joined, that is yeah. basically a street-level skinhead gang, um, but because I didn't look like them, I didn't have tattoos on my face, and I didn't um, dress the way they did, they needed a normal-looking person to be the face of their group. So I think if uh, if you are, if you have these kind of hateful ideologies, um, as long as you wear a nice suit and you don't tattoo your face, you'll be allowed to speak about these ideologies anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like, yeah, it's like every week, like the New York Times or like one of these like so so called liberal uh, media papers, they always do like some sort of puff piece on Trump supporters or even people in like white supremacist movements who basically um, and they espouse hate, but they kind of are treated like, oh, it's such a cutesy oddity. That's weird, isn't it? He's just a guy who wants a family, and he likes Seinfeld. Isn't that weird? You know, I see so many of these puff pieces. Um, I don't know. Do you feel like there's there's a gateway towards normalizing the most dangerous parts of white nationalism in our current media? I think there is, and I, I should probably let you know um, I don't watch TV. I'm, I'm very, very out of touch with the media. Um, That's fine, yeah. But I, especially when, I mean, with social media with people being very comfortable about what they post online about themselves and also with uh, how easy it is to screenshot a, a text message conversation more and more people get kind of outed for being racist and they're they're normal people they're like teachers and yeah and police and you know people you know they're your neighbors they're people you trust so i think with when you see oh yet another person got caught being racist and they're just another normal person they aren't just out of prison they aren't uh, yeah street level people it it does kind of make it look like racism is just a normal thing now right yeah and it just it just sort of seems like it's i don't know it's just so ingrained in people in a way that people don't want to acknowledge even um because like there was that i mean i don't know you may have seen this uh in your periphery you may not have um 
you know, there's been uh, reports of the Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, almost half of the Customs and Border Patrol agents are part of this Facebook book group that was sharing hateful, racist memes, really sexist memes. And then there's another report about uh, a lot of police officers being part of these, like, hate, like, Facebook groups that were also hateful groups, basically, where they were sharing, you know, racist memes and stuff like that. Um like, when you were in the white nationalist movement, did you ever see, like, anyone trying to attempt to, like, have a pipeline between, like, um, their group and then, like, more law enforcement, more respectable society? Um, not with the police, not in the group that I was in because we are just total trash. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's see, in the Northwest Front, we did have a couple of doctors. Um, they were some of the major financial backers. Um, oh really? Yes, and you know that that's also troubling that somebody somebody has a medical license and these beliefs and yeah, one he was actually um a prison doctor and our so you know he's practicing medicine with people who don't have a choice on who they get for a doctor. Are we really supposed to believe that he's giving equal care to everybody who needs it? Yeah. This is in the Northwest Front, you said, that there were these doctors yeah. who were – that's – I don't know, like, uh, I'm, I, maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't. How do you, like, just – I don't know, like, how you can become, like, somebody who's educated, like – I mean, obviously, like, education's not a buffer against racism, but somebody who's, like, actually a doctor who works with people hands-on and people come to them because they need help – I just I don't understand that like how you can go on your own time and I'm going to support like a group that supports genocide. I just I don't I mean I don't know maybe I just there's no answer for that maybe it's not it's not a logical thing. Well, but, I mean it it happened to me. I'm not a doctor, but I am an educated person. I I do have two college degrees and I joined sure. trash like this anyway. Um and it's I mean people don't they don't come at you right away with you know, hey, the Holocaust never happened, and we want to kill everyone who's not white. Why don't you join us? Nobody's going to um, join with an opening line like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of these groups, they they kind of masquerade as gun clubs or conservative book clubs. So you think you're going to hang out with um, some conservative-minded people who like target practice and who like to study Nazi Germany, and then... And then you get slowly more and more drawn in and you realize what it is you've joined. And then, but these people are your friends now. So you think, well, okay, maybe it's not that bad. I have racist friends nowadays. So they tell racist jokes and they put flyers on cars, big deal. And then once you find out what they're really about, then it's, they know that you know and there's no leaving now. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So you can, it's kind of like, you know, if you can't beat them, then join them. Well, I'm stuck in this group now, so I guess it would be a lot easier to be here if I could think the way that they do. And then three years later, I was believing some very bizarre conspiracy theories that don't even make the rounds of Snopes. Yeah. And that, was, that seemed normal to me. So, yeah, I mean, like, I guess, like, um, yeah, okay, so, like, I didn't know that about, um, that these guys were masquerading as gun clubs or conservative book clubs. That's really, uh, that's funny. I thought they were just, like, sort of recruiting in secret. Like, they were 
they own their title, but they just didn't like walk around like, hey, we're going to have a business fair or job fair today in the city square. Well, one of the one of the ways we would recruit is go to gun shows in our white pride T-shirts and we oh, wouldn't well. align ourselves with any particular group. We don't say we're neo-Nazis. Um, we just we're looking for people who look at our shirts and look a little interested and then hmm. say, hey, you know, we have get togethers at our homes. Oh, interesting. Okay. And at those, at these gun shows, um, do you feel like, uh, did you ever see people who were not white at these gun shows? Or are they predominantly white people? Predominantly white people. Um, I mean, I've only, I've only lived in very white areas, you know. Yeah. Uh, Portland, Eugene, a little horrible stint in Montana to live with April Gady. Yeah. So I could just erase that time in my life. Uh, now what's actually like actually on that, so she was the mother of am I getting this right? She was the mother of the two girls who were in Prussian blue, right? Yes, yes. And they left the movement, am I correct about that? They did. And they like went on to become stoners or something. I remember reading that yes. like in the intervening years. Do you know what April Gates is up to these days? Is she still in the movement and just not talking to her daughters? Um last I heard Let's see. Uh, she had just become a grandmother. Um, she made a point of stating that the baby's father was white. Okay. And, you know, I, I don't keep tabs on these people because I I can't follow um, white nationalist message boards without just becoming irrationally angry. Sure. So I, I choose to distance myself from them. Yeah, of course. Um that so that's the last that I've heard of her. I don't. I, I think her her youngest daughter would probably be about fourteen now, and the others maybe in their mid twenties. And I I last heard they were all living back at home with her. Oh, even the ones who left the movement. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. Um. I just don't know how much of a movement there is in in Kalispell, Montana, if that's where the family still lives. Uh, right. There are probably like twelve black people in the whole town, so she might have yeah. just got tired of hating them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she either like maybe just got to know all twelve of them, or just never met them, and that's a little exhausting after a while. Um, I heard that she did buy property out in the Cobbsville, Craig Cobb's failed experiment. Oh yeah, that okay, that went south, of course. <laughs> Predictably. Happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess um oh, what were we talking about just now? I'm so sorry. Um you were talking about April Gates, uh April Gates and then um you know, living in white areas, sorry. Okay. Um yeah, so I would only see mostly white people at these gun shows. Right. Well, that's a that's an interesting uh nexus because like with um the NRA for instance and uh gun culture in America in general, like the Second Amendment people, they're predominantly white conservatives. However, uh, with the story of Philando Castile, who was a legal gun owner, who basically, like, when he was pulled over by the cops, he tried to do things as you're supposed to do. He didn't have a criminal record. Uh, you know, he tried to do things as he's supposed to, revealed that he had a gun in the glove compartment and was trying to get his info for the cop, and then he was just gunned down in cold blood still. And the NRA is pretty silent on that. So 
I just want to ask your real opinion about this, and it sounds like I think I know the answer to this. Um, these, uh, like, the kind of conservative gun culture in America, uh, do you feel like it overlaps pretty heavily, even if not in membership, it overlaps in ideology with the white nationalist movement? Definitely. And, again, I... Like, including the NRA? Yes. Um, because the the NRA is curiously silent whenever, you know, a, a black person gets gunned down or when a black person who's a legal gun owner stops a white person from committing a shooting. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um yeah, and they're they're always and they're very law and order based and they never they never said shit about like stop and frisk policies where, you know, black and brown males predominantly were stopped by the police and frisked for any weapons. Like you would think that these people would observe, observe that oh that that's big government trying to take your that's literally big drug government trying to take <laughs> somebody's guns away. Yeah. Literally, they're they're talking point there. So it's just I mean, that's what's so fascinating to me is like I'm just, I look at the, like these Venn diagrams of like, you know, the ugly sort of like kernel of out and out hatred with people on, with Nazis, with swastikas on their face. But there's, they don't just exist in a vacuum. They don't just exist by themselves. Somehow they find overlap with more respectable aspects of our society, not even through their own efforts. Sometimes like they reach out to them. Like, I guess like to me, it's like, you know, um, just doctors, which is considered like the most respectable job, joining white nationalist movements. It's so insane to me because we, and I've talked about this on this podcast before, and I used to think this, I used to think that people in the white nationalist movement were just like sort of like gangs and that like they came from broken homes and they're looking for a support system. And that's certainly true for a lot of people, like uh, maybe in the groups that you were in, like where it's on the skinhead level, but like, but then, like, you have, like, your your folks, like, the Breitbart's, um, the Breitbart, like, new, uh, news where they brag about being a platform for the alt-right. Um, they, one of their writers, Milo Yiannopoulos, was, you know, basically consulting with neo-Nazis. Um, and then, like, you have Richard Spencer, who, like, I think he was bankrolled by, like, a billionaire named William Regeneri. I think that's his name. I'll have to look that up. Um what do you think about that? Like, is it like, is it frustrating to you that like racism is constantly equated with class and it's always poor white people who are decked on by white liberals when it comes to racism? Like they shit on, like they pretend that racism only exists with like poor white people in trailer parks. Like, does that bother you? Um, what I see are the, uh, the more conservative, you know, non-trashy looking racist, um, they're kind of claiming the same victimhood that they claim that black people are claiming, if that, that makes sense. Now they, yeah. they say, you know, oh, black people are always whining about being victims and how everybody's a racist. And then these white people, they go and do the same thing. Oh, I've been discriminated against because I'm white and I need a straight pride parade because yeah. nobody likes heterosexuals anymore. We need to be, you know, we're a minority now. Yeah, exactly. And the thing about all this is, like, it's found its way into the highest offices in the land, but not only, like, with Donald Trump, of course. Like, he literally said, go back to where you came from to four American citizens, three of them uh, who were born in this country. So uh, they were actually, they're, they're, they can't go back anywhere. They're home. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, he said that to these four women of color and several, there were a few congressmen who are white, who didn't, weren't born in this country, who called him out on that and said that, you know, this guy, you know, I oppose him. He's never told me to go back to where I came from. Um, and, um, I was going to say, yeah. And like a lot of like that, I guess like the sort of hateful ideology has been a little bit laundered, uh, through the media, like Tucker Carlson's show on Fox news. It's good that you don't watch news, but Tucker Carlson literally, uh, was pushing the white genocide conspiracy in regards to South Mm -hmm. Africa, which is like, a, a again, like hashtag white genocide was a thing on the white nationalist webosphere on Stormfront and all that stuff. And it, it should have just lived as like a dumb conspiracy theory that like nobody would give a shit about. But then Tucker Carlson on a major news network decides to boost it. And uh, and then, you know, Tucker Carlson also, he keeps talking about like how even legal immigration is a bad thing for the country, um, how diversity is not making us stronger. He's like literally like there's a pipeline from him. There's a direct pipeline of talking points from the most egregious parts of the white nationalist movement to Tucker Carlson. And um, somehow even mainstream media sort of doesn't see this threat. You know, there's kind of like the ecosystem of white nationalism stretches a lot farther into respectable society than we think. And that's um, that's sort of a worrying, uh, worrying uh, development that's happened, <laughs> I guess. Um, another thing I'm seeing is racism disguised as patriotism. Oh, yeah. Um, especially with these groups like the Proud Boys. They, you know, they have, I think, at least one black member. And, oh. you know, they say they, they accept gay people. So they can say, oh, we're not racist. Look, we have a black guy in our group. We just hate, you know, women and immigrants and Muslims. We're not racist. Yeah. Um, especially anything anything to do with immigration, which is what um, the National Socialist Movement so many years ago was pushing, that they said, you know, if we want to be accepted in the mainstream, um, we just have to push this immigration issue because so many people, even if they're fine with interracial whatevers and gay whatevers, you know, you can always find somebody who doesn't like illegal immigrants or maybe immigrants in general. Oh, wow. And so, like, that – and that was something that was said in the white nationalist – like, unlike the sort of, like, create – like, the – extreme white nationalist groups that you were a part of basically during mm-hmm. your time. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly has worked. Um, and because it's like, I mean, I think most of the country doesn't like Donald. I mean, like most of the country didn't vote for Donald Trump, but the people who do like him every time he plays that card, his numbers do go up amongst his supporters. Definitely. And I guess like, you know, um, this would all be fine if none of these people had any power. And, um, are you, so like, I know that you don't read the news a lot. Um, are you familiar with like sort of like the ecosystem of like 4chan and 8chan and Gab AI and all that stuff? I just know those are, um, horrible websites that produce murderers. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I want to, I can get. yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and I guess like I want to get to that a little bit. Um, cause we talked about like, um, you know, the, uh, some, uh, you know, acts of terrorism by lone wolves last time that we talked about and like one of them um you know was this backpack bomber and harold covington had denied that you know he says like a false flag operation we're seeing a lot of lone wolf uh shootings right now uh we had the synagogue in pittsburgh we have the synagogue in california we had um 
Uh, we had uh, um, the Christchurch, New Zealand shooting, the mosque. And then we had uh, this on Monday. Uh, no, no, Sunday. Uh, the shooting at, at the Garlic Festival in Gilroy. And that was another guy who was uh, espousing white supremacist texts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you think about that? And is there any way to stop these lone wolf shootings? Because to me, it's like these folks don't belong to any group. You can't always right. trace them to like a leader, but there is an ecosystem that they're being radicalized in, like on the Internet. Is there any way to combat that? Probably no simple way. I mean, obviously, you know, I, at this point, um, I, I'm no longer a firearms enthusiast. I don't own a gun. I don't, um, I don't miss owning a gun. I, if somebody really did sweep through and grab everybody's guns, you know, I, I wouldn't care. Right. <laughs> um, I, you know, obviously that's not going to happen. Um, I think what the, the gun control advocates or what the um, gun control opponents rather don't realize, you know, they, they all say, well, just stop, you know, children and criminals and morons from buying guns. And that, of course, we should, and that might work to an extent, but what they don't account for is um, good legal gun owners who later turn bad. I mean, I yeah I see it at, at work all the time, you know, people shot by their father or their spouse or their boyfriend and you know, he bought the gun five or ten years ago when he was a good guy, and then later he turned bad, and he still had the gun. But one thing all these lone wolf shooters have in common is they didn't just suddenly – I mean, this didn't come out of nowhere. There were signs. Yeah. Um, there's always something like um, espousing white nationalist ideology or harassment of women, previous yeah. threats of violence. Um and those signs get ignored until it's too late. So I think one thing that would help is just a zero tolerance um, of anything related to this. Like the first time you you draw racist pictures in school or you you know send a harassing text to a woman, you're done. You're no longer at that school. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's an interesting thing because like um, like I was talking. Um, to Daryl Lamont Jenkins, uh, you remember him from One People's Project? I know that you'd had, uh, you'd corresponded with him a little bit when you were leading the movement. Yes, I was looking for a place to ditch my giant box of Nazi uniforms and patches and stuff, and I, I somehow found him. Yeah, um, I was talking to Daryl Lamont Jenkins about this, and obviously, like, he's, you know, helped people move, like, lead the movement, and you know, Life After Hate, like, they've helped people lead the movement. There's just that part of me, though, that, like, I just feel like these movements should be just be treated like an ISIS cell, like a terrorist group. And in the same way that this, if we found out about ISIS terrorist cells in any part of our country, our government would have wiped them out by now. Mm-hmm. And there's always, like, that part of me that's like, okay, maybe we should just treat these white nationalist movements like that. But then, like, you know, obviously there's people like you who, like, that's not your final stop obviously, and you didn't really, your heart probably wasn't really ever into it. You just found yourself in that situation. Um, so, I mean, I get very conflicted because um, I, I do like to consider, and I know that like Christian Pichy alone, the other founder of Life After Fate, Hate, Christian Picciolone, am I pronouncing that right? I don't know. I don't know that individual. Yeah, yeah, he's the other founder of Life After Hate, or like the other 
uh, co-CEO. I don't know what you call it. Yeah, his name's Christian Picciolone. Um, so I just wonder, like, um, so let's, like, take that example of, like, the school kid who's drawing racist, like, swastikas. Um, so he gets kicked out of school, right? Mm-hmm. And I And I agree with you. Like, there just has to be consequences for this sort of behavior. I guess, like, how do we stop him from becoming more radicalized? Because these people tend to revel in victimhood, like you said. They tend to, they tend to, like, martyr themselves of, like, look, I got kicked out of the educational institution, you know, that. Right. For my beliefs, for my heritage, because I was proud of my heritage. So it just feels like, you know, we marginalize these folks. They will get violent and they will attack. If we ra- if we normalize them or allow them their free speech, they get even more radicalized. They bring more people in and they attack. So it's like there's no – I just – like, I don't know. Like, what's the next step? Like, if we say to somebody, we're not going to tolerate this at all, if you draw this or you say this or you harass women, like, uh, you know, you're abusive to women, you're out. Like, what's the next step after that? Like, is it just sort of like – Monitoring, monitoring them for the rest of their lives. I, I like. I don't know. What's the next step? Right. And maybe I don't know either. Because obviously, you know, a fifteen, sixteen-year-old gets kicked out of school. What is he going to do? You know, go to another school, get a job, just stay at home. That's probably, probably they do end up just staying at home on all those websites and become more radicalized. Right. I mean, the ideal situation is that he wouldn't uh, get to that point of of anger in the first place, and that's. I mean, that's just going, that's far beyond my expertise. Obviously, there's something, something very wrong. It's probably a combination of environment and, you know, I, I don't want to say genetics, but, um, possibly something within the individual that makes him more, um, more prone to, to anger. Yeah. So I guess like, is there like a value in shutting down or just like, this maybe would be a First Amendment issue, but is there a value in shutting down completely like Gab AI, 4chan, 8chan, Stormfront, uh, that Andrew Anglin site, the Daily Stormer? Um, would there be a value in doing that, or would they just pop up somewhere else? Most likely they would pop up somewhere else. I, I, I'm pretty sure that um, you know hate speech does not uh, fall under First Amendment. But then you can always claim it's not, you know, I mean, what really is hate speech versus right. satire or, you know, love of being white. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, like, that was an interesting, like, I'm glad you brought that up because in the <clears throat> the episodes of The Hate Project that I was doing that you were on, um, I would talk to a Klansman named Dragon1488, um, probably not his oh, real yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, his parents probably did not name him that, but um, he would just talk about, like, he would say vile shit, but then, like, he would always sort of be like, okay, well, you know, I'm not really, you know, you're asking me if I'm racist. I'm just motivated for, by a love for my people. And, like, a lot of the people on the show would spin it that way. They would say, well, I'm not racist. I don't have any hate. I just have a love for my people. Um, and that was a theme that they would say, and that's how they get away with it. And then, like, with... uh you know, you have like the groups, like the Proud Boys. They say that they're a Western chauvinist group and they're a drinking club, so they kind of mm-hmm. sanitize it that way. And then 4chan and uh, Gab, like this this ecosystem on the right, 
they have the okay they they sort of like do this trolling where um it's like they made the okay symbol into a white power symbol. They say they did it as a joke, but it's become like a real signaling uh device between all these people. Um and so it's just like I guess like there's there's no need for racism. There's no need for hatred based on what somebody is at all in the world. Like there's literally no need for it. Um, I guess like why does it keep propping up? Like I mean, there's literally like there's literally no need for it. Is that is it just like sort of like um, the the result of a broken society where people just aren't taken care of? Um. You know, I don't know. Like, what do you think about that? I I do believe that to some extent. Um, a lot of people, if they grow up without parental supervision, they're going to find um, their parenting um, on online or on TV. Yeah. Um, and that's where you know I I can just out myself as a total complete liberal social justice warrior here and say you know. Just start paying single moms to stay home with their kids. Why? Why should somebody yeah. have to work two jobs and let her kid be raised by these websites? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There should be like maternity leave. I mean, we don't even have like that in, within reason, and especially like for mm. single moms, we we ding them even worse in this country. But I guess like you know that may be too simplistic because then like how do you explain somebody like Donald Trump who grew up rich and had, was provided for his entire life, or like a guy like Richard Spencer who grew up kind of. Um, not too far from where I grew up. He grew up in Preston Hollow, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, and I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas. And Preston Hollow is like a gated community, a really rich neighborhood. So, yeah, the rich people who are not affected by the sort of cracks in our society, I can't tell why they choose to be involved in this stuff. Like, why do they choose to be racist and join, like, racist movements or start racist think tanks with a more sanitized name. Um, Rich people you know, often don't, they don't deal well with rejection. They're not, they're used to getting everything they want in life. So when they can't get something, um, they might not be able to take it very well. I bet if you look back at Richard Spencer's history, you will find that he's been rejected by women and <clears throat> that just cut him to the core because he didn't know what to do with it. What do you mean? Yeah. No? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, actually, uh, speaking of that, like, in regards to misogyny and uh, sexism, um, the rise of the incel movement, I mean, it's probably always been there, but it's certainly made news in the last few years because of a lot of incel-related killings, uh, angry men who hate women and they want to kill them. Um, did you see the qualities of like what we're seeing in the incel movement? I'm sure the answer is yes on this, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Uh, did you see the qualities of that in uh, the white nationalist movement? They definitely overlap. Um, I remember one of Harold Covington's speeches to, I mean, it was, it was kind of a strange approach to recruiting, but he was telling, you know, would-be Northwest fronters that, you know, you might have to put up with a life of celibacy because uh, this is not where the girls are. Right. Right. And I mean, like, and also just in general, like in white supremacist, white nationalist movements, they do have like, they do venerate the white woman, but they still put her in a certain role, right? Like she's a breeder. That's her job. Yes. Yeah. And as far as, you know, love for your people and pride in the white race, I mean, look at the way they treat white women who, if they ever manage to get one, spend time with them. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, um, it's, it's calling it love and veneration of the white woman, but like, as long as they play within their, uh, prescribed role, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, um, did, do you feel like the incel movement was able to give like a big boost to the white nationalist movement? Cause people have said that before. What do you think about that? I think, um, a lot of people come into the white nationalist movement from the incel movement. Um, most of the men, they would say their turning point was when they got turned down in favor of a black man. Right. And like, well, I'm, I'm such a great guy, but no, women don't like me because they'd rather be with black men. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, or like, yeah, there's sort of like, um, <clears throat> there is that aspect of like, um, even before the racial aspect comes into it of like that nice guy and that nice guy sort of aspect and like the rejection and I can't like go and take a look at myself. I have to like prescribe it to some sort of like a movement against me as a white male. Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Uh, cause they, they label like, uh, I don't even know the whole lexicon, but they label like them chads or Stacy's or some shit yeah. where, yeah, like the chads are the guys who like the women desire, but they shouldn't be desiring them. Um, now, I do want to ask you this. Um, there are a lot of stereotypes about, like, women in Islam. Um, a lot of stereotypes from the West. Like, a lot of people in the West will, even very liberal people in the West, even like your Bill Maher's and people like that, um, they'll kind of, like, shit on Islam a lot for its treatment of women, and they say that Islam is really backwards in regards to women, as if, like, you know, America has been so wonderful uh, mm-hmm. women. What do you think about that? Like, how how is your time in Islam as a woman? Uh, what like what's your perspective on that? Are these stereotypes at all valid? Um, and yeah, what's your general I mean, experience, as a woman? What I say um, to to these people, you know, I say that, you know, I I earned two college degrees. I got the career I always wanted. Um, I support myself without any need from, you know, support from a man. How exactly am I oppressed? And somebody's response is always inevitably, well, you know, go to Saudi Arabia and see how you do. Go to Pakistan. Go to go to all of these countries, you know, that I've never been to. Um, now, I know women from Saudi Arabia who come here, um, they aren't ripping off their headscarves and saying, yay, I'm finally free. Um most of them, when they come to America, they're miserable. Hmm. Um, I guess what? you know, moving moving from one country to another is always going to be a huge life change. But I think what's um, what I find more oppressive to women is people's refusal to actually listen to the experiences of a Muslim woman saying, "This is what I think about being a Muslim woman." They say, you know, I mean, if if their attitude toward Islam is anything favorable, the response from the West is generally, oh, well, you're brainwashed or you, you don't know how bad you've got it because, you, because you're because you so brainwashed. And I think that in itself is oppressive to women, refusing to listen to women. Yeah, yeah. Because even like white liberal feminists will say this kind of stuff to Muslim women. Right. Like even like that sort of like what you were describing earlier of like, a white liberal person coming up to you and being like, oh, you're so brave. Like that carries like, at least in my ears, 
just carries like such a condescension of like, oh, you have like taken the step down, but you're taking a step up by like embracing this weird thing that, you know, mm. I don't think has a place in our society. So that's so brave. It's like, yeah, I mean, it, it's very, it's very odd. And like, yeah, right. Just, just not even listening to the people that you say you're advocating for is pretty fucked up. Um, so a lot of people just automatically, they think, well, okay, women, women are forced to wear a headscarf or they're forced to cover their faces. Um, yeah. there, there are more countries that have banned the headscarf and banned the niqab. Uh, I think it's equally wrong to force a woman not to wear something that she wants to wear. Right, right. Um, I, I think it depends on how, how you choose to look at it. I don't see myself as being told I can't show my body to a man. I, I see it more as the men are being told you're not allowed to look at a woman. Right. Okay. And actually any, any kind of, um, eye contact or, or gazing upon a woman is forbidden, um, yeah. beyond, um, an incidental glance. So, I mean, if a woman walks by a group of men at the mosque, they will drop their heads. Uh-huh. Um, the women don't drop their heads when a man walks by. Right. Because it, it says in the Quran first, when it comes to modesty, the, the men are addressed first. And the men are told, just don't even look at women unless you're married to them. Right. So I guess like an argument that I've heard about that is, or sort of like um, <clears throat> a question would be, so then why are the women the ones who have to cover their bodies head to toe? Because it's the men's responsibility to not look at them. I see it as I get to cover my body because a man is not worthy of looking at me. Okay. Oh, I've never considered that. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I guess like uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about is your family. Uh, you have two kids, right? Yes. And uh, do they live with you still? They're living with their dad about 20 minutes away from me. Okay. And... um your dad, uh, who you're, yeah, you married young, and uh, this was the opera singer, right? Yes. Cool. Uh, do you still keep in contact with him? Do you get along with him? Yes, we get along well. Okay, cool. So you still have a good uh, <clears throat> dynamic with your family, so you see your kids pretty often still? Yes. Okay. Um how are your kids? How did you, have your how have your kids uh, accepted or not accepted your conversion to Islam and these changes in your life? How have they responded to that? I would almost be convinced that they have not noticed. Oh, <laughs> they are what? teenagers. Um, they they care about um, social media and anime and um, uh, cartoon characters and drawing and uh pop music cool they're they're living very teenage lives and i you know they don't have any interest in religion or exploring um anything about islam definitely not or any other religion okay cool and that's great and you and your ex-husband are I'm assuming allowing them to make that decision on their own and come to that conclusion when when they need to. Oh, definitely. I, um, you know, I love this faith, but I don't have any desire to um, drag people into it. I think it's got to be a decision they make on their own. Awesome. Okay. 
Well, um, Karina, uh, thank you so much for um, calling me up. And um, you are getting married soon, correct? Correct. Okay. And you are getting interracial married. Am I correct about that? Yes, definitely. He's Pakistani. He's Pakistani. Okay. Is he also Muslim? Yes. Okay. Great, great. Uh, well, I got to say, um, if uh, without even trying, by just living your life, you keep finding a way to piss off your former white nationalist colleagues. Because first you leave, then you convert <laughs> to Islam, then you marry a Pakistani. So I salute that. That's a that's a triple. There's some baseball term, triple header or something like that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I salute you for that. Um, and uh, Karina, I just want to thank you so much for calling uh, and talking to me on this show. Uh, this was a really wonderful conversation, and really, uh, just like our first conversation, this was really enlightening and educational for me, and I hope so for the person listening to this right now. Yes, me too. I I hope that somebody someday, if they decide to that they want to leave the movement, they can remember that there are people who have done it, and you know I'm not the only one. Okay. Well, if somebody is interested in leaving the movement. Um, do you recommend them contacting a certain place or a certain party, like perhaps Life After Hate, or what do you recommend that they do as their first step? Uh, the first step, I mean, it's going to be different for everyone. I obviously, um, ensuring your physical safety and that of your kids, you know, I, I had a serious advantage in that I didn't have kids with some loser. So my kids had a safe place to be while I was getting out of all this. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not true for a lot of these women. Yeah. So first ensure your physical safety and that of your children, even if you need to reach out to law enforcement. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I, did, I did it a little bit of an unorthodox way. I did reach out to federal agents. Um, and that's actually something I didn't touch on in 2013 because I was I just left and I was still I was very afraid. Oh, wow. Okay. So a, another way I pissed off the racist is I became an FBI informant and then talked to Oh, them. wow. Okay. Okay, wow. Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. You did not touch on that in 2013. <laughs> um, okay, that's really interesting. Wow, Okay. Um, but that doesn't have to be the path for everybody, right? Um, right. That was, um, you know, it's uh, it was highly unorthodox and um, not not an easy thing to do. So I you know, I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. Okay. Okay. Um, well, great. Um, so uh, Karina Lure Olson, uh, your website is www.imcorey.com. Um, what I read on the website with your blogs was really interesting, so I recommend anybody check it out. Um, a lot of interesting insights into the embalming and uh, embalming funeral reconstruction business. And your Twitter is at six point me please, and I'll put both of those in the description for this episode uh, below. Uh, Karina Olson, thank you so much for calling. Uh, really great talking to you. You as well. Thank you for listening to Paradox of Civility. Um, as always, you can reach me at paradoxofcivility at gmail.com. The email's in the description below. Follow me on Twitter 
or follow this podcast on Twitter at Civil Podcast. Uh, like our Facebook page. Still don't have an Instagram. Um, and comment, share this podcast if you love it. Uh, if you hate it, share it with your enemies. Um, and I will talk to you next time. Thank you.